Faircare. This is um, Cindy Taylor, the co-founder of Faircare, along with my dear hubby uh, David, who is the man behind the camera. We are here to offer Nathetic Counseling, which is a Christian care and uh, counsel, wise counsel, for couples who have experienced an affair in their or infidelity in their marriage. We are continuing this week on our uh, little series about uh, looking at every instance in the Bible where the word adultery is used so that we can uh, start to determine what God thinks about adultery and how we should, as Christians, how we should act and react to infidelity in our marriages. This week, we're uh, starting in with the New Testament instances where the word adultery is used. I specifically looked at uh, as if you remember, I indicated in the first series how I do study and some of the tools that I use, and I chose the widest uh, a version that has the, the most number of hits, if you will, for the word adultery, so that we could study the most that we can. In this instance, we're starting with the New Testament. This, if you don't know um, the New Testament that well, it, that's okay. Um, we're starting with the Gospels, and then we're heading into some of the uh, the, the teachings that Paul did as the Apostle Paul uh, taught both his churches and, uh, like for example, Timothy, one of, a younger pastor, how to address adultery. In the uh, study of these verses, what I discovered is um, there's actually about four points that I could summarize with the New Testament verses. And uh, the, the four points in, in quick order are that the Gospels primarily talk to us, the, one of the first things they talk to us about is that uh, infidelity is not only in your body. It can be also, some, is, it's concern, God's concerned about our hearts, so it can also con, uh, occur you know, in your heart and mind, where you're thinking about adultery, so emotional affairs. Uh, number two, the, the Gospel verses also tell us the one moral exception to a divorce and the one moral exception is infidelity. We'll get into that a little bit. Uh, the third thing we can learn from the New Testament is that um, most of the rest of the New Testament verses discuss, uh, when they do discuss adultery, the word adultery, they are saying things like uh, that people who commit adultery will not receive the kingdom of God and they will be judged by God. So we'll get into that. And then the very last instance where adultery is mentioned is in the book of Revelations. Uh, I made a little note that, uh, you know, the book of Revelations is very apocryphal, and so it's very hard for people to understand it. And in this instance, we have a plenty of uh, really good meat to chew on that I'm going to choose to just not necessarily dive too deeply into that Revelations one. So let's get started on the series, and we'll see if kind of get into each one of those uh, little points. The, the first point that to to discuss would be that the Gospels are uh, primarily, Jesus says in, in every one of the Gospels, something like this. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say unto you that if you look at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery. These kinds of verses can be found in all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke especially, because they uh, go into when Jesus was doing the Sermon on the Mount and those kind of uh, talks. Uh, John is a little, um, John's, the Gospel of John is a little different anyway, but um, it's, it's still there in the Gospel of John as well. 
Matthew especially does a great job in two places covering this uh, particular discussion. You, you've heard it said, and one of the things that I wanted to point out is that in the instances like Matthew 5, 31 to 32, and Matthew 19, what Jesus is doing in both both instances, he's sitting down with people and he'll reference commandments from the Old Testament. The people um, that he was speaking to, some of them were, you know, just common people, and some of them were the religious leaders of the day who knew the commandments inside and out and, and thought they were all that in a slice of bread. So he references the commandments, the Old Testament stuff, and he's, he'll say to them, well, you've heard it said this, but I say unto you. And what he's trying to do is to reference the Old Testament command and then give the true intention of the command to correct the mindset of the hearers. The, the Pharisees, when it said, do not commit adultery, had kind of envisioned it like, well, I can do anything up to the last extent of where I'm actually in bed with the woman, right? So you can do all the other, you know, anything else pretty much, except the intercourse part. As long as you avoided that, you were okay. And what Jesus was telling them in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19 was that the, the true intention of the command is that God is concerned about our hearts and our minds. And when I say hearts and minds, I'm not distinguishing between the two. In, in my definition, what he means is God is concerned about your inner man. That's the things you think about, right? That's the true intent. And the command was not necessarily don't allow your body to find it itself in bed with another person. <laughs> the command was, to, uh, the intent of the command was to be faithful. Uh, that's how we here at Affair Care came up with the definition of uh, fidelity that we have. Uh, fidelity, that is faithfulness, is 100% of your affection and loyalty going to your spouse only. The reason this is the definition we use is that that, that does not leave you... Now, bear in mind, we're not saying you can't love your cousins or family members. But what we mean is that kind of closeness, that kind of, you know, that, that would go to a spouse, 100% of it, affection and loyalty, is what you've promised to your spouse. That leaves 0% for anyone else, like the person at work, the person in, your cl in some other class, the person in the ministry. You cannot give a portion of your affection to someone else. Likewise, you cannot give a, even the smallest percentage of your loyalty to someone else. So when your spouse is saying, I, I feel like you have to pick between me and her and you're picking her, then that means you're giving your loyalty to someone else. So this is how we came to that definition that God is, is concerned about our inner man and that's where our definition has to be your inner man needs to be faithful. You made a, co a covenant with God, and you made that. Thus, you need to um, give your worship only to Him, and you made a covenant with your spouse, and thus you need to give your affection and your loyalty only to your spouse. Okay. The second uh, thing that I've noticed with the verses that are, uh, especially in the Gospels, again, is uh, that there is the the one moral exception. 
And that is, is uh, revealed, if you will, in two places. I'm going to actually quote these because they're that important. Uh, that's Matthew 5, verses 31 to 32, and in Matthew 9, 19. Now, we do also see this same uh, instance being related in Mark 10 and Luke 16, but um, though in those two, it does not give the moral exception, and in Matthew it does. Now, a lot of people have said, well, if it's not in those other two, then maybe it's not an exception, and things have been, you know, people have been trying to exegete that. Um, Matthew was specifically written by a Levitical Jew to other Jews. And so he was being like very nitpicky, if you will, very, very clear on what is moral and uh, within the law and what is not. Whereas the other two, Mark and Luke, are not written that way at all. Mark was written by a, basically a guy who was a younger man who was a follower. And then likewise, Luke is a doctor. So he's describing things um, in, a, in a different way the different audience, okay? So that's why I think those guys left it out. But let's go into the verses themselves. Matthew 5, 31 to 32. I'm going to uh, see if dear hubby will put it, I'll put it up here on the screen so you all can read with me. It says, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, uh, let's discuss that one a little bit. Uh, this also goes along with the concept of uh, divorce. But primarily here, we're talking about adultery. And what was happening is that, um, okay, back in the day, in Old Testament days, men would divorce their wives and they would just say, you know, I'm kind of sick of you, uh, we're divorced, goodbye, and basically kick her out of the house. Women did not have jobs, they had no way of providing for themselves, and so they had no um, stability uh, where they could, and Moses, when when God gave Moses the law, and he, he gave them that option, to, uh, he permission, if you will, to, to write a divorce, he said, no, you can't just divorce your women at will. That's, that's immoral. I want you, if you're going to do that, you have to write them a certificate of divorce. And this then is like a legal way for the women to have some protection. Okay? You can't just divorce them higgity-piggity. So then um, the Pharisees were talking to Jesus about this, and they're saying, like, well, why did God even allow it if, if he didn't want us to be that way? And Jesus explains to them, if a, a man divorces a woman, and there's no particular reason for it, he is putting her in that position of being a victim of adultery. Even though uh, maybe she has not gone and, and lived with another man or whatever, if she stays by herself, she has no way to support herself. If she goes to another man and in an attempt to stay alive, she would then become adulterous because he forced her there. So the, the, the weight of the adultery, so to speak, is on the husband who'd left her. Now, likewise, you know, you can turn this around. So don't, I'm not saying this has to be husband-wife. You get what I'm saying? In, in those days, the way it was is the husbands were able to make a little more legal things than we have going on now. So he's telling them, look, if you divorce your wife, you're putting her in the position of, of being um, an adulter adulteress, and she didn't do anything. 
And that's not what God wants for us, for our marriages. And likewise, he says, if you're a, a man and, you're, and you just, oh, I'm going to marry this woman who has been divorced, then you're just committing, all you guys are doing basically is swapping wives. And he says, that is not what we're talking about. We're talking about a lifetime covenant commitment of fidelity. And that's what you need to honor. So that's what he's trying to teach them. But it, he does put in there the exception, except for sexual immorality. If a husband is going along and discovers that his wife has been sexually immoral, uh, probably by sleeping with another man, right? Then that is a, an exception that Jesus gives that it is uh, within their moral right. It's not a commandment, but there it, it would be at least at minimum moral. And we get pretty much the same thing from Matthew 19.9. I'll, I'll read it to you. Uh, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. See, you can tell, again, he's kind of reiterating his words. For, you know, same guys, Pharisees. So, <laughs> so he's trying to teach them that what God was talking about was not, oh, what can, how far can I go uh, and still be within the law? What God was trying to tell them was, be faithful. I want people who are faithful. My people are faithful. And then he does give the exception in there that if if a wife discovers her husband's been sexually immoral, it is legitimate for her to make the choice, the moral choice. It is moral for her to make the choice <laughs> to to divorce because his action of being sexually immoral is what broke the marriage, not her action of legally recognizing his breaking. Does that make sense? Okay, the third part that most of the rest of the New Testament verses cover in summary is that those who do commit adultery will not receive the kingdom of God and will be judged by God. And what I found quite amazing is that most of the verses are not even close to being ambiguous. It's extremely clear. Uh, let's start with 1 Corinthians 6, 9. I'm, I'm reading from the New International Version, but you could look at, like King James, it's going to be a similar concept, okay? Uh, this language is just a little easier to understand, I think. So verse 9, it says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, I'm sorry, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men. At this point, I'm not going to go into a big uh, discussion on homosexuality, as that's not our focus here. Our focus is adultery. And it says right on there that sexually immoral um, idolaters, which are people who uh, worship someone other than God and they're unfaithful to God, uh, adulterers, who are people who are unfaithful in their marriages, these are people who are not going to be receive, inherit the kingdom of God, and we're to, even told, do not be deceived. I, I, put, I think that's in there because uh, so often people try to deceive you with, uh, oh, it's okay, oh, you can decide morals if it, uh, using your own distinctions, whatever. No, the Bible says, and it's clear, even if it's not popular, God's word is God's word. I I'm choosing to trust and believe in God's word. Okay, let's another good example is 1 Timothy chapter 1. So he's starting off teaching a young pastor, and it's the very first chapter he's writing about, uh, verses 8 to 11. Now, I chose this whole big section because 
Um, if you don't read the whole thing in context, you could easily take it out of context. So we're going to start with verse 8. It says, we know that the law is good if it's used properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels and the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and the irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Okay, in this verse, Paul is writing, uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, who's a young and new pastor, and he's trying to teach him about what the law is good for, and teach people, and how to give wise counsel, and he's trying to give him the little warning about don't, don't be deceived by false teachers, and this is part of that, it's, that's the very first chapter, he's trying to, to start teaching this new pastor, and this instance is all about what the law is good for. The law is, is good if it's used properly. And that is to say, don't look at just your outward appearance, but also look at your inner man. That's The law is good for that. Even as Christians now, we can look at the Old Testament and find out what kind of uh, actions, but also thoughts, please God, and then conform to that. And that's what the law is good for. We also know that the law is not made for those who are righteous. And I think what he's saying there is the law doesn't save. But the law does uh, convict people who are lawbreakers. And then he goes on to list a bunch of them. And included in there are the sexually immoral, those who commit adultery. So uh, we're clear there that those are people who are not inheriting the kingdom of God. The law will condemn them. Okay, and in our last verse, at least th for, the, for this discussion, is Hebrews 13.4. Again, using the New International Version, it says, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Now, you note here that it doesn't say that God will judge those who determined for themselves that what they were doing wasn't quite right. No, it says that God will judge the adulterer. Uh, that is the person who is not faithful in their marriage. And he and all the sexually immoral. We as human beings are amazing at coming up with additional new ways to pervert sex and come up with <laughs> ways of making it un impure. God has just told us, here's how it is to be pure, and that's what we're supposed to do, and we come up with all kinds of ways to pervert that. But God will judge that, and it's all the different perversions, we don't need to list them all. <laughs> we will come up with new ways of perverting. <laughs> so this is, uh, to me, this third one is about that principle of continuing sin. Uh, when a person, you know, cl claimed they were they were Christian, but they ha are doing a sin and they're confronted, they're, they're saying, hey, what you're doing is wrong, please stop, and they choose not to stop, they're continuing in it, they're not being sanctified. And it's a sign that for us to observe that they were perhaps not truly the Christians they claimed to be. Um, when a person is a Christian, they're confronted with their sin, they will stop doing that. Uh, because the, the desire is to be more and more and more in conformity to God and doing what pleases Him. Uh, next week we will be going, uh, continuing our series, probably ending it up 
uh, for the month of July, and it's going to be uh, about notable instances of adultery in the Bible. Uh, specifically, I'm going to uh, look at the adultery of, I think it was David and um, Uriah's wife, right? And we're going to look at the uh, instance of Hosea, where he married a prostitute. So we're going to be looking at those two instances sort of like step by step, if you will, and see what we can learn from these two often misunderstood infidelities about uh, what God wants from us and how he would like us to act and react uh, to unfaithfulness. So thanks so much for joining us. I uh, look forward to seeing you next week. And uh, God bless. Bye-bye. <laughs>